Okay. Well, welcome to The Journey. Um, my name is Kevin Polkey, and I am the host of The Journey. And as, as many of you know, uh, The Journey is about stories of transformation. And as we know, that transformation, uh, one of the key elements of transformation and the transformational stories is that uh, we've endured or experienced some type of ordeal or some type of setback. And um, in this particular episode and, and this show is really about how to um, an opportunity to share about that um, experience of that ordeal. And most importantly, what did you learn about yourself that you wouldn't have learned if this ordeal wouldn't have happened. And today we have a special guest uh, with us, uh, Ma Mandolin Mull, and uh, is joining us today. Uh, she is uh, in the Rockford, Illinois, Rockford, Illinois area right now, and um, and she's working at Rockford University. And um, and I just recently saw in the last couple months that you were um, one of the individuals that were identified of 40 people that you should know under 40. And um, and that caught my eye for numerous reasons. Um, but uh, I, I read your profile in there and and the and the story that you had there as well. So, Madeline, welcome. Welcome to the journey. Thank you so very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. So, um, well, one of the things I ask my guests uh, when they first come on is just to kind of get to know you a little bit um, as a as a person. Um, what does Madeline do for fun when you have an opportunity and you're not working or not studying? What, what do you do for fun? Uh, great question. Um, the answer would be work. <laughs> I um I I don't know that I do anything really that well other than work. Um. I do enjoy reading. Uh, I, I have a great passion for reading. Um, and I have two uh, very badly behaving uh, puppies. So we'll see if they behave themselves right now. I'm from home today. Got a basset hound named Bobo Baggins and a little rescue terrier named Griffin. Um, and so they they uh, sometimes slow me down to read a book. So that's usually uh, a nice time when I get that chance. Sure. And if you, uh, so if I went into your uh, bookshelf or your library, what, what types of books would I see? Um, so I have vast ambitions to be a polymath one day. Um, so I like to know a little bit about everything. Um, so you will find, uh, just absolutely a cornucopia of, of different genres, um, styles of writing, different authors, um, you know, right here, I've got uh, Jane Austen and Walt Whitman. Um, over here, I've got uh, James Clear uh, of Atomic Habits. I've got one on the mind-gut uh, connection for the microbiome. Um, yeah, so, yeah, of course, I've got a ton of leadership books. Uh, so, yeah, you kind of take your, your pick there. So it's pretty interesting. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I have probably the same way with the books that I read, even though I probably most enjoy autobiographies or history and autobiography. Um, but I, I probably have a, a similar wide variety of books that I read and collect and, and probably similar to the podcasts I listen to as well as the music I listen to. Um, so it depends yeah. on where I'm at is what I what I want to listen to or read or whatever it may be. So very seldom Absolutely. am I going. Yeah, very seldom am I going to be just reading one book at a time. I'm going to be reading multiple books at a time. So that's me. Yeah, unfortunately, I have books in every room in the house. I'm. I feel like sometimes I'm like I bail from from I'm, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Right. I just walk around the house with a different book. So, uh, and all of them have different bookmarks in them. So, um, yeah, it's. I one of these days I'll finish one of them, but <laughs> usually it's uh, moving around. Sure, sure. So, so, uh, so, tell us a little bit about where your background and where you're from. Uh, I, I, I noticed that there's a a, a non Rockfordian accent. So, uh, so, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm. My mother was an Air Force I, colonel's daughter. Um, my father had lived all kind of around Texas. Um, and so I claim Texas is home, but nobody ever believes that when they hear my accent. <laughs> um, I've done some world travels. I'm mainly in uh, the UK. Um, and so uh, I, 
there are times you might hear me say Ireland is home, but I, my, my friends and family back in Texas still claim me for the most part. Um, and although I've been in Rockford for the last four years, I'm, I really love uh, being in the Midwest. I, I realized Midwest nice was a real thing. Um, and not like what we have down in the South where we say we're nice, but we're not really. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So what, what did bring you to Rockford or how did you end up, uh, you know, coming to Rockford? So what was the story there? Yeah. So I'm, I somehow found my way into academia, which was never my plan. Uh, I did my undergrad degree in political science. I was going to be uh, the first female politician in my family. I'm third generation politician in my family. That was the goal. And then I realized that I, I, I was a political operative and I realized that I have thin skin and I don't like when people don't like me. And that was very hard for me to So I'm, I graduated early from the University of Mayhard and Baylor and kind of found myself rapidly getting promoted. Um, I enjoyed being a leader, but I was really scared that I was going to fail my people. I just thought I've been given a gift and nobody's taught me how to use it. <laughs> and, and if I'm not careful and I don't do things to take care of me, I'm going to hurt people just because of my own ignorance. So I decided to go get my MBA. I'm back at my alma mater, Mary Harden Baylor. And it was there that I realized uh, there's actually a phenomenon for that called the Peter Principle that says we get promoted to our level of incompetency. Basically, we get promoted based on the performance of our past work with the expectation we'll be successful in that new role, oftentimes not being trained for that new role. And I thought, that's I'm getting an MBA. <laughs> so I'm... Um, got my MBA. I graduated from the McLean College of Business there at UMHB and I got a job at McLean Company. I was identified as a hypo. I'm, I was supposed to get a year's worth of operations experience uh, there in uh, their flagship location. So dusty warehouse of 100 and, uh, about 116 degree warehouse with no AC. I'm, I oversaw the loading dock of 160 men. They were all men on my team doing manual labor that I have no prayer of being able to do. And I'm, I was a conversation where I asked my guys, you know, haven't you thought about where you'll be in 10 years? And he said, no. And I said, well, yeah, but if I get promoted and don't, you know, you should take my job. I, you know, and he goes, well, I'd have to have a college degree. And I don't know anybody who went to college. So I've gone twice. So I'm, I started mentoring, helping him get back into school. And uh, eventually he brought me the job description at Charleston State University. And it was a hybrid role. I was going to run the business program there at that satellite location in Waco, Texas, and also get to teach. Um, and I thought, oh, I don't know that I, I mean, imposter syndrome was real. And uh, I went in to teach um, and I got to teach adult learners. It was, um, we were only teaching the junior, senior students. And I realized how much my work experience was resonating with the students. So I decided to get my PhD um, and I just am very faith oriented. So I thought, well, God, I'll apply I, wherever. And if you open the door, I won't question it. And when he opened the door to Rockford, I said, are you sure? <laughs> nah. And it was really cold up there. Um, and my family all thought that I was uh, nuts for leaving. Nobody can. Nobody in Texas understands why you would ever leave Texas is the thing. And um, I, yeah, I came to Rockford. I, within my first year, I was the director of the uh, degree completion program. And then the team I appoint or elected me as the chair so I've been the chair of the Perry School of Business um for the last four years now so it's been a whirlwind <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations so what what have so regarding what you're doing with um, the school of business at, at Rockford University kind of what what would you like kind of envision um, what you're what where you want to go with it and then how has some of your life journey kind of reflect on that yeah so you know it's interesting I'm I got asked today something about this quiet quitting 
time in and uh you know everybody wants to know about the millennials. you know of course before that it was all the millennials why are the millennials demanding all of these things and meaningful work and i said well they're it's because we it's always been that way and and the analogy that i always use is when was the last time that somebody hit their metrics and that their supervisor said as a reward for all that great work that you've done i want you to do 20 percent less next quarter um, it doesn't happen. We keep pushing people further and further and further. We have a broken system and we're breaking people in the process. We act like people are machines, forgetting that even well, well-oiled, high-quality, well-maintained machines break down with overuse. And I think we're seeing that very much in our work environments today. Uh, I think we're seeing it. I think it started with business. We're seeing it in education. We're seeing it in healthcare for sure. Um, and so where I see the vision of the Pierre School of Business going is this idea of how are we really stopping ourselves from some of those metric-oriented type pushes, recognizing what they are, knowing that that's a tool we use, but are we using it with instructions and with intention? And how are we developing our people? Whether you're an accountant, whether you're uh, you know, in finance, whether you're marketing analyst, whatever it might be that you're coming out of the PRA School of Business, you've got to be collaborative with your colleagues. You've got to be able to understand that the work environment, we're gonna get a lot further when we collaborate rather than we see everything as a competition. Um, and that's the approach that my team and I have started building in the PRA School of Business over the last several years. It's resonated greatly with our students, with community members. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's different than what a lot of people expected in the business world that we were going to be kind of, you know, dog eat dog. Those days are over. It's not sustainable. Um, and I think most of my students will tell you the goal is sustainable success. I tell them, I don't care about your next promotion. I care about you being able to put food on your table and provide for your family and have the quality of life you want for the rest of your life sustainability is is critical there so that's that's what we're we're trying to produce robust um empathetic uh business leaders who will be able to go out and be agile um in the workforce um be critical thinkers challenge assumptions and i'm um, yeah be able to support and develop their colleagues and, and team members so and there's a, a probably a hundred hundred thousand different things that you just talked about. I that I, <laughs> yeah, well, I can, I just thinking of all the different things, uh, having, you know, used to being, uh, I used to be a competitive athlete, uh, football player, wrestler, bodybuilder, yeah. and then taking that same, uh, template that I used to win a national championship and state titles, and then turn that into being a therapist. And then later turned that into when I opened up KP, um, uh, 21 years ago. And so there was that mindset. Now it's my primary role now is not clinical work anymore. It's mostly leadership development. And so, right. so many things I could resonate with. I mean, I remember the excitement that I would get as the end of the month would come. And I would mm -hmm. then get a chance to then look back and reflect on how KP had done, let's say March of whatever. Right. And, right. and then then very quickly recognize that then there was April 1st. Right. And it started all over again. And, <laughs> and, or, or that I was, you know, I grew up in a blue collar family and my dad was a factory worker. And, and so it was always, you know, he never worked a 40 hour week. It was always 50 to 60 hours a week. So then as a clinical therapist, I just assumed full time meant, well, then I have to see 40 clients a week. And, right. and so that was, that was my, that was my normal. And, and so, so you just figure out how you do direct care for 40 clients a week, because that is the number, the standard where, where then I found out someone told me, no, as a general rule, therapists are supposed to see 25 clients full time. And then you then have all this, you know, to do paperwork. And, and I, though though that mindset helped me to be very successful um mm -hmm. and then maybe even outpace some other individuals um it also there's many times where there was um a lack of fulfillment there was there was the right. grind but there yeah. there there was all these um 
false summits that would yeah. would happen, you know, and yeah. um, and so it's it so a lot of things that you just talked about was not my experience in school in the early nineties. Um, right. That was not my experience. Let alone, you know, they never taught social workers to be business oriented um, <laughs> at, at at all. But um, so let me let me ask you. They that. didn't teach business people to be empathetic either. <laughs> so we're we're working sure. backwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting you say that because when I first started. KP was when I probably got my first significant business consultant job, which now today we would talk about, you know, it'd be more like a, a executive coaching. I did some work with what's now is Collins Aerospace. And, mm -hmm. um, and I had no idea, you know, leadership, you know, Dan Goldman's work with leadership development versus management. And, and I had no idea what that really meant, but very quickly I'm like, oh, this is just psychology. This is this yeah. leadership development, leadership books were these were books on say they just use different words. And right. um similar to like when I was doing sports psychology, I'm like, this this is the same stuff as just different words. And um right. and so um that intrigued me. Um besides the fact that I I wanted to I wanted to do well in that position, um, it intrigued me because it was just reframing some of the things that I was already doing. Right. Yeah, and I think we see, um, I see a hunger and a craving of that in the workplace that, um, you know, I make the joke all the time. I go, well, I don't do anything special. I just do things that aren't supposed to be done in the business realm, which is talk about empathy and talking about developing your people and caring about them and helping them find meaningful work, right? Um, and talking about their totality that they bring, their holistic being that they bring to the work. And and really eschewing the idea of work-life balance, which I hate. Uh, I, I just think that doesn't exist. It's a misnomer. Let's quit saying it. It's not a real thing. Um, it's like trying to act like both those things are equal. They're not. Uh, life is so much heavier than just the work bucket. Um, and so I say, yeah. And then I see people in their work environments just lean forward. You know, um, my nephew, I, I overheard him going, I don't know what my aunt does, but it, She's like a big professor or whatever. She does like some really cool stuff. She helps people who feel stuck in their jobs. And I thought, way to go, 15-year-old. Like, okay. <laughs> so I was like, he kind of, we'll go with that. Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that, um, you know, that, that being able to, his observation or overhearing about what you were talking about and obviously the passion you have about doing it, he's probably picked up on that and and utilized his own language to describe it, which is probably right. more clear than if it was written by an MBA. So, um, right. <laughs> so, so. very true. Well, Madeline, I'm I'm guessing, and I know you shared a little bit with me, is that similar to what I was saying that that the the bucket called life is definitely going to have more weight in it than right. the bucket called work. And uh -huh. even if we, even for some of us who may, you know, impersonate a workaholic at times, um, even though, and we have maybe a, a, a higher tolerance for a, a larger load of work um, because of training, because of experience, whatever it may be. Um, but when life comes in that, that, um, it definitely weighs heavier, right? It's an exponential weight that that is placed on us. And so, when when you think about some of the some different experiences along your life journey, which includes work, that's happened, how how have you noticed that that made the work that you're doing even more important? Well, so it's interesting because I would say at the pinnacle of my career, you know, when we looked at those summits that you referred to earlier, I'm I have had some pretty uh, devastating health issues happen along the pathways. I'm, I've always been a high performer. I'm ambitious oriented. I'm more achievement oriented probably rather than ambition. I'm, but I, so I was uh, in my first, uh, I was in a graduate program and I was studying political science, uh, running my first, uh, I, healthcare clinic I'm right out of college you know brand new manager and I got sick and I didn't know what was going on um, and later after a whole bunch of tests I got diagnosed with severe Crohn's disease um, I I have I 
a interesting component of Crohn's disease where it's pretty invasive um, and it's a pretty aggressive form of Crohn's. Uh, despite that, <laughs> I kept working. I kept, you know, I, it was a big transition to think I'm going to be sick the rest of my life. Um, and versus I can just take, you know, a Z pack and I'll be okay in a couple of, you know, days or weeks. Um, but realizing I was going to be sick the rest of my life. Um, and at first I struggled with that a little bit. I was still, I'm um, pursuing my graduate degree. Uh, I was still, uh, running a uh, satellite location, um, trying to find myself as a as a leader. And um, so I realized that, you know, it was a lot less about vanity and a lot more about sanity um, in the sense that I had to find kind of a meaning of what was I going to get off the mat and get after it. And so I'm, I had changed careers, uh, had been headhunted from another organization again, was climbing the corporate ladder there. Everything was going really well. And I started my MBA program. Uh, I had been married. Uh, my husband and I um, got married and uh, we were just shy of a year. Um, we found out we were pregnant. We're super excited. Um, and I lost the baby. Uh, and then I had nine surgeries in four months um, that, that made it to where I could not have children. And, um, my husband moved out. And so, um, I kept working. <laughs> you asked earlier what I like to do. Um, some would call it a coping mechanism. I would call it sanity. No, I'm, and so I kept working. I'm, I, you know, continued to climb the ladder. I'm, I went and then while I was getting my PhD, I'm, carrying a very heavy workload, uh, uh, about four times the workload of my colleagues. Um, again, I say that not in an egotistical way. I hope it doesn't come across that way, but in a sense of that's what drives me. I wanted, I've always wanted to do more. Um, and I was teaching class one day, noticed my hands were starting to shake. Didn't think too much about it. People had noticed that I was kind of stumbling, dragging my right leg behind me. Didn't think too much about it. Thought I was just tired. I was getting a PhD. I was carrying this heavy workload. I had a three-hour commute every day. This made sense. I was going to be tired. Um, and I went into work one morning and was trying to talk to a colleague, and I couldn't talk. I had words in my head, but my mouth was not coordinating. Um, they thought I was having a stroke. I went to a hospital. We had spinal taps. We had all kinds of tests on. And I got diagnosed with two forms of dystonia. And dystonia uh, occurs, uh, essentially, it's damage to the brain. Um, and it causes muscle contractions. And those muscle contractions can be spasms, or they can be fixed. And so it'll curl up, and I can just kind of stay curled up for a bit. Um, I was told that within five years, I would be um, severely disabled. I wouldn't be able to walk, talk, or feed myself. Um, and I thought, well, I'm getting a PhD. That doesn't sound like something I want to do. So I said, how do I fix this? Uh, and the doctor said, we really don't know. We don't know a lot about this. They thought maybe it was connected to my Crohn's. They weren't entirely sure. Um, and so I threw everything at it. Um, I knew I was going to be on medications that were going to suppress the neural activity, kind of make me depressed, which is not my natural habitat. Um, I was having to stay away from people a little bit more because I just wasn't able at that time yet. I hadn't been adjusted to these new muscle contraction. I was walking with a cane, all that kind of stuff. And um, so I thought you're taking me away from people, which I love. I, you know, the, I'm up against it. So we we banned all negative things in my home. Uh, my husband and I did, and we watched um, Hallmark movies. I wasn't even allowed to watch my beloved Texas Rangers because they break my heart all the time. So um, I read a lot of uh, Mitch Albom, uh, Max Luciano books. You know, it was, um, we had fantastic support and I continued to get my PhD. Um, my husband would drive me four hours uh, every three weekends. Uh, to, to sit through 16 hours of doctoral statistics um, and, and <laughs> come back. Um, and I graduated uh, in three years with my PhD. I've come here. So 
that five-year diagnosis uh, in October will be have been six years ago. And so, uh, you know, I still sometimes I will, you my speech will slur just a little bit. My muscles will get a little uh, tense, things like that. But most people don't notice it at all. Most people notice that I have Crohn's disease. And clearly I came to Rockford University. I worked, I became, like I said, within the first year I was here, I was uh, promoted twice in leadership roles. Um, I still, you know, I'm non-tenured. Uh, I go up for tenure next year. So I'm still consulting. I'm still publishing research. I'm teaching, um, advising, all of those types of things as well. I'm um, while managing uh, doctor's appointments each week, uh, those kinds of things. So I'm, um, yeah, I think, you know, you talked about resiliency. Uh, how do I, um, you know, and how did I kind of, what was my fuel for all of that? Um, I won't lie and say that those early years, right after the Crohn's diagnosis, um, I was on the mat a bit. I stayed on the mat a little bit. I took, I thought if the world would stop and give me a good pity party, it was going to be a good one. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was going to make it great. Um, but once I started to realize, and it was really something very small. I mean, it, it truly was. It was the idea of, I noticed that I would look in the mirror and tell myself, you look sick. And I thought, I'm telling myself that. I'm speaking that into existence. I'm not going to live that way. So I started doing little things. I didn't have any energy. Um, but I just thought, I, you know, this is with me for the rest of my life. So I'm going to find ways to make this work for me. So it was little things like I'm wearing my favorite perfume, wearing my grandmother's jewelry. Um, going back to it wasn't vanity, it was sanity. And so trying to align pieces that felt like touchstones for me. Where were some anchoring touchstones that I could, could feel a little bit of confidence or a little bit of strength that would help me move forward? And after a while, those pieces started to really form a really tight puzzle for me um, and a, a tight foundation. And I'm... Then when uh, I had lost the baby and when I, I had the surgeries and the dystonia, all of that came along and I thought, I've been here before. You know, I, I really did. It was, it thought, I, you know, it was tough in the sense of, dadgummit, <laughs> you know, I'm okay, you know, let's go again. But I thought, I've been here before. And in the sense that, I don't know what this diagnosis or what this situation is going to carry out, but I'm going to trust my wings. And I tell my students all the time that that uh, quote that says a bird on a branch is not concerned with the branch breaking because its trust isn't on the branch. It's in its wings. And I always tell my students, trust your wings. Give yourself a fighting chance. Take a bet on yourself. And what I knew was I have I've been scrappy before. Whatever it looks like in this situation, context is going to be different. I'm going to have to appreciate that, you know, what got me here won't necessarily get me to the next stage, but I need to trust my wings because I'm stronger than I think. Um, and I see those moments, those, those milestones in my life as touchstones themselves. I don't see them as stumbling blocks. They're definitely stepping stones, but they're keystones to a lot of my identity, a lot of um, when when things kind of get to me sometimes because I do have a pretty hyper and, and uh, personality style, and um, we called my the team calls me Ginger Ninja. Um, when I get feisty or scrappy on things, I'm I learn to to not be so uh, worked up over the trivial because I I go back and think about the times things were big. Um, and how we navigated through those. Um, so I think it's made me more real, robust um, being able to handle that. Um, and I would say probably, although I would never wish this um, on someone, but I was able to comfort. I had, um, because I share my story pretty publicly, which in the beginning I was afraid to do. And then I thought, well, I didn't know anybody who had crows. I'd never heard of dystonia before. I thought, I'm going to share it. Um, maybe I'll help reduce the stigma of that, um, that I can still be highly successful and do all of these things while having these invisible illnesses. Um, but I had a, a former student several years ago who got diagnosed with dystonia. And what um, they told me was, Dr. Mole, when the doctor told me that I have dystonia, I was so much 
more comforted and I wasn't as afraid because I knew you had it and I see what you do. Mm. And I, you know, me getting past my fear of hiding my story or my shame, you know, that kind of like, I don't want people to think that I'm not qualified or I'm not good enough or I can't handle things. I don't want people to discredit me before giving me a chance, right? By by getting past that ego, by getting past that fear, I was able in that moment, at least through my story, to offer comfort to someone who was scared. Um, that That is pretty empowerful, you know, pretty empowering and um, pretty powerful. Um, yeah, so... That's a lot there. <laughs> no, no, no. That no, that's no, that's wonderful because I could go in a lot of different directions with that. I mean, being a social worker, specifically being a school social worker, you know, we you know, part of part of the 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 experience of, of learning why the why behind certain civil rights movements, why you know, certain things within the school system regarding special education laws, certain things, and you know, it the special ed law originally came out of the American Disabilities Act. And that was based on handicapping conditions. And a handicapping condition is different than a disability. And yeah. but the, the whole idea behind it is that just because someone has either a handicapping condition or a disability doesn't mean that they shouldn't have the same opportunity for the learning experience. Which also and it's tough. Yeah, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just saying, you know, this is something I was talking about with somebody the other day. I'm, we were doing um, a DEI um, uh, type training and um, and the speaker was phenomenal, but, you know, so much was focused on on um, race and gender um, and, you know, not a lot on ability. And I had just the night before read something that talked about, uh, it was a doctor had written in the book and said something about I'm um, women of childbearing age. And I thought, well, I am a woman and I am of childbearing age, but ability is the third thing. And oftentimes ability is not as necessarily considered. And I said something to, to a friend about that later. And I said, you know, it's been, it's been all these years and I still, you know, I have two ADA uh, defined um, disabilities. And I had really recoil for a long time by saying that I had a disability. Um, I've just recently started to embrace it. And I had a friend say, uh, I still struggle with it. And my friend is legally blind. And I thought, because we see accommodations as almost an albatross instead of an empowering component, we see it as something that's kind of something we should be ashamed of. Um, and because a lot of times in the school districts, people with disabilities, you know, I, I have yet to see in the HR realm, uh, HR training focused on neurodiversity. Um, and the fact that we have a lot of our employees right now in their, you know, 30s and 40s getting diagnosed um, as neurodiverse, and they didn't even know it, let alone, you know, their colleagues know how to interact with them. Most of the time we were segregated in school, so we don't know how to interact with people who have some type of disability, whether it's a visible one or an invisible one. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, that stigma is really heavy. I'm still on ability. Um and this idea of how are you, and I'm certainly not the spokesperson for it all. I'm just the spokesperson for Mandel and Mull. Um, but I think it's really interesting. And I hope we can start to move um, the conversation into those spaces. Because I think it's something that uh, there's a lot of people who are just like me. you know. And I, and I say that a lot. Like everybody has their obstacles. Um, and, and mine will look different than theirs. And theirs, uh, you know will look different from other people's as well, but whatever it is that we're kind of moving forward with, but I, I encourage people because we were told in the past, you know, when we're growing up, don't talk about it. Like don't, you know, it, or if I tell people they're going to feel sorry for me, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. And I, all of those things are true. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I'm, and then people tell me that they're inspired by me and I, I'm humbled by that. But at the same time, I'm thinking, I don't want to be that either. <laughs> I just want to be me. I'm, and so it's a, it's a struggle. Um, but I think it's really important to think about where are we, you know, I, I think a lot of times about a younger mandolin um, or a younger Kevin and what would it look like if they had a better understanding of, you know, any kind of disability, um, whether it was visible or invisible and how to integrate and have work with people 
not in a stigmatizing way of, oh, you're sick. Mm, okay. Don't do too much. Are you okay? You know, like I'm not fragile. Like you're not going to break apart. And I get that sometimes. I'm four foot 11. You know, people, <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little sprite, but, um, you know, I, I do get that sometimes. And then I get other people who, you know, tell me that, uh, somehow I grow in height, um, when I'm animated, but you know, it's, so it, it is, it's a balance of the unknown, and because people don't have enough awareness of how do I, what do I say to somebody who's sick? How do I handle that? Um, do I support them? Is that, is that talking down to them? It, you know, and so there's this really weird um, dialogue that isn't occurring. And I want to just tell people, just, just start talking to us. <laughs> you know, like, ask us questions. If we tell, if it crosses a line, trust us enough that we'll enforce that boundary. Um, trust us enough that we know how to say, hey, I don't really feel comfortable sharing that, you know, or, well, and, and while also understanding, again, this is just mandolin story. It's not everybody else's. There's, a, you know, other people have totally different stories that have Crohn's or, or um, dystonia or have lost a child, these kinds of things. So, you know, not trying to like bucket people together on that either, right? Really meeting people where they're at and trying to build those those developmental robust relationships with people. I think that sense of connection is what we really need anyway. Sure. No, I hundred percent agree with you. And then that some of the things that have the, the good things that have come from uh, the last couple of years with re regarding the pandemic, and then also some of the patterns that we've got into that has um, the things that we have, learn from going through um, being shut down and and how we had to learn how to run businesses and run school systems and and communicate and then how that may have also caused some of its own problems and and right. exasperated some things that we were already struggling with right i mean for right, you know, right now i see you know because i spend a lot of time similar to yourself talking about in developing emotional intelligence and that uh, that the that the emotional intelligence or EQ is a, a stronger indicator for uh, potentially a stronger indicator for success within the workplace because there's an ability to work together and collaborate within teams where um, there's there's going to be fewer and fewer positions that are requiring people to work siloed and um, and not work in those teams. And it's hard to be innovative when you're only in the company of yourself and and innovation is more what we need today more than we're we're leaving the technology stay or uh age and moving more into this innovation uh, uh age and and so whoever is going to be able to be most innovative and collaborative and imaginative is going to then you know that those are going to be offering the solutions um you know, to, to our world problems. And so I, um, I'm encouraged by some of the things that you're talking about and that we're teaching it in school. Um, I, I was in that time period in school, no, no disrespect to my professors, but there was still, there's still, it was, uh, I love the stories that they told. I, I love mm -hmm. the stories that I told. Maybe that's why I'm a therapist. I don't know, but I love the stories that they told, but we never got tested on the stories. We only got tested on certain content and I was a great right. memorizer. I could I could memorize and regurgitate really really well, um, but they didn't learn much. Um, right. I, you know, I learned a lot from their stories, but I didn't necessarily learn or take away the ability to apply the content um, right. because it was just about putting the content into a paper or put the content on a test form, and that that wasn't real helpful. Especially wasn't helpful once I started doing clinical work. Um, no, I agree. We, um, I'm, I'm known to be a writing professor, a writing intensive professor, as member, several members of my team are, and uh, we do a lot of reflection-based papers. And I'll tell the students, you're writing for an audience of one, but it's not me. It's you. It's your, it's your education. It's your experience. It's your growth and development. Where are you taking ownership of it? Tell me how this stuff matters in your career. How can you use it? How can you apply it? Where have you applied it? 
where is it all just junk? And if it is, you got to make a convincing argument. Yeah, <laughs> so we, yeah, I I agree. It's a different way, but I I think our as I said, our students and our um, community members have been highly responsive to that type of strategy, um, because they find the tangibility to it. There's teeth behind that, um, where people can think. You know, one of the greatest things that I can hear our students say is, "I learned this in class last night, and I implemented it at work today." I'm. Um, and I, that was kind of my philosophy. I just knew that I had advanced in my career, not through memorization, um, not through vocab words, but by learning how to interact with people, um, people differently than me. Um, because I had lived, even though I'd seen a lot of the world, I baby in the family. Um, and, you know, I had been pretty, pretty sheltered. I'm and I'm pretty much an ingenue. I'm, you know, going to a private Christian college, pretty much just reinforced all that for me. <laughs> so, so I, I walked out into the world with really big eyes to say, hey, world, I'm, I want to learn from you. I want to help and develop you as best I can. Um, and it really came about with just trying to build connections with people, trying to be authentic, trying to be transparent. Um, I don't always get that right. I try really hard. I there are some days. My question every day when I go to bed is, "Am I proud of the woman I presented myself to be today?" Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer is no. <laughs> and so I'm um, I'm like, "Oh, gotta do damage control tomorrow." So yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, growth is not linear, right? <laughs> true, true. You know, it's uh, because of a combination of different things. Uh, uh, you know, one was I, I started reading. A friend of mine introduced me to Ryan Holiday's work um, with uh, his mm-hmm. books, "The Obstacles Away" and "The Ego's the Enemy" and "Stillness Is the Key." Yep. And then I had an accident um, when I was hiking, and which forced an emergency, you know, to be airlift or to be taken off the mountain and and um, repaired a quadricep tendon that was ruptured. And um, I knew that that night when I was in the hotel with my son um, that I probably needed to re start rereading um, the obstacles the way, because it, it appeared that I had an obstacle. Um, and um, little did I know that that was then going to be the foundation for part two of my suicide prevention you know, program. And then is probably the, the workshop that I do more now that I do anything else is about developing resilience. And, um, now there's a there's another segment that I started doing a deeper dive into Viktor Frankl's work, um, yeah. and uh, and and that remind he what you've been talking about today reminds me of Frankl's work regarding that in the midst of suffering, if we um, similar to Simon Sinek's work about if we in the midst of suffering understand what our why is, um, we'll be able to endure. Um, uh, we'll be able to endure the how and, um, and and being able to, and I guess that's one of the things. And so I'm throwing it out there. That's one of the things that I'm wrestling with right now is that I understand that in theory. And I understand that developing your meaning comes from action. It isn't my sitting and contemplating about it, but I haven't figured out from a standpoint of how do you go about instituting that in the educational system? How do you bring that in to at the, at the at the primary and secondary school level about that if there's the beginning of inviting our students to look into their own meaning within their experience versus just trying to get through it or avoid the hardship? I know how to talk about it, but I haven't figured out application for it yet. Yeah, I keep going back to this quote by Julius Caesar that said, it is easier to find men willing to volunteer to die than to endure pain with patience. Mm. And that resonated with me so much because I thought about the fact that if you've ever watched a movie that ends in a cliffhanger, how ticked off we get. Like we didn't care if it would have been a crappy ending, but the fact that it just left us like this, that we're like, what? And we lose our mind when we have that friend that gives us like juicy gossip and then just finishes, you know, doesn't, doesn't finish the story. We demand some type of ending. We crave it. We want to hear the end of that song. We want to hear the end of the story, whatever it might be, we need some kind of denouement. And so when we don't get it, 
we get pretty feisty. And so what unfortunately that that's built in is this discomfort of, of being in the middle, of being in between, of really growing in the process. And so I think with our students, it's learning, it's getting them to learn to be more comfortable in that, that middle mm-hmm. and understanding that if you push this to have some kind of conclusion, you push it to have some kind of uh, finished, and you're going to get an ending, but it may not be the one you want. Mm-hmm. And if you can sit here and say, where am I growing? Where am I developing? What is this moment, this this time supposed to be teaching me? Where can I expand this more? Then you start to realize just how robust you are growing. We only grow linearly when we're trying to reach an ending. And that's the problem with a lot of the metrics that we're using these days. But we can grow dynamically when when we sit there in that discomfort and the in between. We can learn so much about ourselves about our environment about other people i'm um, when we just dial it back you know we cheryl sandberg talked about that lean in lean in we, we really all bought it i certainly did I'm talking a lot more these days about leaning out lean out and in that stillness is the key is a phenomenal book i know he's got a new book coming out i just pre-ordered it and i'm discipline and you know, I, I, he also, Courage is Calling is a phenomenal book. And I think it takes courage to be uncomfortable in that waiting. Yeah. We are, we try to fill the gap of waiting all the time. I mean, I was at the doctor's office this morning and I wanted so badly to grab that phone. And, you know, Simon Sinek talks about this too, that like, just, just sit there for a second, just wait, yeah. just be. And we don't do that enough. And the more that we can do that, the more that we can really dial into what is the meaning of these things. But I, unfortunately, I think we're up against some kind of, you know, confining structures there. Um, because we really have put people in this, this continuing forward momentum to hit these metrics every, you know, eight week, eight week report cards or six week report cards, you know, those kinds of things, progress reports coming out. So there's always that metric that they're looking for without just trying to find the meaning. So we've got to break away from the metric or at least align the metrics to the meaning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was just thinking when you said that is that finding a way because we're never going to get 100 percent away from the metrics because it's too built in. And there's some benefit to it. There's accountability. But how how do we figure out how to use more more relevant tools to actually measure learning, not, you know, or measuring that growth that you're talking about the, the, you know, cause I know for me, there's a lot of pressure in, in the therapeutic and behavioral health world about how to measure the transformational process of therapy. Really? Right. <laughs> really? There, there, there's, yeah, an, I know. It, it's not like measuring uh, uh, a, a surgery on to repair a, a knee. It's not, there's no, it's not right. the same. It's not the same therapy. It's not the same type of thing. And um, our, our hearts metaphorically, our soul is not on the same physical timeline as muscle and tendons and ligaments. And so, um, but that is the world, how we see things. So it's, I think the, innovation and creativity is going to come in. How do we figure out how to measure that? But, but measure it as, as Senec would talk, how do you measure it in an infinite way versus a finite way? Right. Yeah. yeah and I think, I, I think, um, you know, it's one of the things about um, that finding the meaning with a, you know, I, I have a friend recently I was talking to some nurses um, and they were talking about, you know, in the healthcare industry, they were all talking about, they were all hitting their metrics, but everybody was burnout, right? Everybody was still hitting their metrics. Things were getting done. And I was talking to a friend about it and he said, then they're not winning. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, if they're hitting their metrics, whatever it is that they're being measured on doesn't feel like victory to them. Because if they're still burnout, he said, winning teams don't feel burned out. <laughs> like, Winning teams, if they feel like it's measured in their currency and the things that make them go, they don't feel deprived and, and drained like that. Mm-hmm. And he said, so you're, you've got a misalignment of what it is that you think is meaningful versus what they think is meaningful. And, and I think you're exactly right. Where are we trying to get that back into place? 
Um, you know, I'm a quant a quantitative uh, methodologist, so I'm a big stats nerd. So I do love my 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 metrics, but I really think alignment is incredibly important. And we forget to have those conversations about what's meaningful to you. I don't get to tell you what's valuable to you, but I do have to, as, as a leader, ask what that value is from you. Yep. How can I, you know, how can I, and then how can I craft that and support it better for you? Yeah. Sure. Well, and I think I do at the beginning of the year um, is I ask my my therapist, what is their goal that they want to, what is, what in January, what do they want to see that they did come next January? So in January right. of 22, they set goals for what they want to say that they've done and achieved or accomplished or experienced or whatever by January 23. And they know that I'll come and ask them, you know, the following, the following year, I'll ask them that question. Um, and on my part as a leader, it's important for me to be accountable to myself, to be accountable to them. If I ask the question in January that I'll do a follow-up in December. Um, right. So Madeline, I could probably talk with you about this topic. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're going to be doing one of those three-hour podcasts. So um, I do I need it. <laughs> so I enjoy I, I enjoy everything that you're doing, enjoying your story. I think um, without a doubt, even if you wouldn't have had these setbacks in your life, I think you probably would be doing the work that you're doing anyways. But I think that because of the setbacks you have, you probably have even a deeper conviction um, about what you're about what you're doing and and why you're doing what you're doing, and um, and I think you're doing. Uh, it sounds like you're doing amazing work. I'm even more intrigued to 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 learn and follow what you'll be doing, um, and I appreciate you being on 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 the journey because as people are listening, this is I believe exactly what people need to hear is that we're going to have setbacks. And we're all going to have our story that we have to, um, the story that we have to create um, and the one that we're writing and, um, and setbacks are part of that. But it's most importantly, what are we going to do with it and how are we not going to let those setbacks define us? So uh, again, Madeline, right. thank you very much. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you or reach out to you, um, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? I would say I'm, I'm all over social media. Uh, primarily LinkedIn is probably the best, but I'm also at mandolinmullet.gmail.com. Okay, perfect. Well, Madeline, once again, thank you for being with us and uh, and all, all, all of good fortune as you move into this particular new school year um, with your students this year. So, um, Thank you so very much. You are welcome. Uh, as, as with having Madeline on the show today, as she's talked about her setbacks, um, if there is someone that you think may benefit from hearing her story and listening to her energy about what she is doing with her work and her life, uh, please share it. Please uh, pass that along. And if there is some type of comment that you want to share with Madeline, please reach out to her either on LinkedIn or Facebook or reach out to her through email. As always, thank you for being with us. And I look forward to being with you next week. Thank you.